Great to see you. It's a beautiful day, isn't it? This is the day the Lord has made. We're rejoicing and we're glad in it. Trust that you're doing okay. If you've joined us online, welcome to you as well. Thrilled that you've joined us. Welcome. Um, We are in the middle of a series, This I Believe. We're talking about the essentials, we believe, the foundations of the faith called Christian. And one of the practices that we have been engaging over these weeks is to recite together an historic confession of the Christian faith called the Apostles' Creed. The Apostles' Creed in one form or another originated in about the 4th century and has been used by all of the traditions and tribes of Christianity all of these years. And so we are rehearsing this creed. It's entitled the Apostles' Creed because it has 12 points, one for each of the original apostles. And so uh, we reaffirm our faith by reciting the creed. So I'm going to invite you to stand as you're able right now. We'll recite the creed together out loud, and then I'll read our text for this morning. Are you ready? I believe in God the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead. On the third day, he rose again. He ascended into heaven, is seated at the right hand of the Father, and will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. And now from the epistle of 1 John, 1 John chapter 5 and verse 1. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God, and everyone who loves the Father loves his child as well. This is how we know that we love the children of God, by loving God and carrying out his commandments. In fact, this is love for God, to keep his commandments, and his commands are not burdensome, for everyone born of God overcomes the world. This is the victory that has overcome the world even our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world? Only the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. Now to verse 11. And this is the testimony. God has given us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. Now may God inspire and instruct us through his word today. You may be seated. Thank you so much. Today I want to talk about God, the good dad, as it were, and let me just start with this thought. Christianity is essentially, quintessentially, about a personal relationship with God. That's Christianity. It's about a relationship with God, and this God is a God who loves us and wants the best for us. Now, did you hear that? The God that we serve is a God who loves us and wants the best for us. It's, a, it's a, a bit of a revelation to most people when they hear that the Christian God is a good God and a loving God. Because in today's culture, it's easy to assume that the Christian God is not loving. And somehow that Christianity has become passe, it's old, it's irrelevant, it's boring. 
And I must confess that I had a similar impression of Christianity before becoming a Christian myself. I was raised in a church. And so I attended a little Methodist church in a small town. And if you had asked me when I was a boy what I thought of Christians, I would say it is a belief for people who are old and sad and bored. And I would have just cause for that kind of definition, I promise you. In fact, one of the things that I get questioned often is how has Union Chapel become what it is and sustained, you know, so much fruitfulness over the years? And one of the answers to that question is I grew up in a church that was cold and stale and dead and boring and passionless. And so what I did as a leader of a church is I remembered what I experienced in my church growing up and I did just the opposite. Whatever... I know, that's, that sounds terrible, doesn't it? But that's what we did. And to this day, we do have done just the opposite of what I experienced growing up. Because that's, I, when I became a Christian, I was amazed, I was surprised to realize that Jesus and a relationship with Jesus is a living thing. It's dynamic, it's compelling, it's wonderful, it's adventuresome, it's exciting, it's life-giving. There's no li- life like it. It's really living to know Jesus. And it was astonishing to me that a local church could make a relationship with Jesus so irrelevant and boring. I was stunned by that. And so my practices. I actually uh, understood what C.S. Lewis wrote about in the title of a book about his own experience in Christ entitled Surprised by Joy. Surprised by Joy. I was surprised by how much fun it is to be a follower of Jesus. So becoming a Christian was the start of a most exciting and important relationship, and indeed it was the start of a whole new life. You can look on the screen at 2 Corinthians 5.17. I love this verse, and we look at it often. When someone becomes a Christian, he becomes a brand new person inside. He's not the same anymore. A new life has begun. Now, experience is very greatly, just to give you some perspective, some testify to always knowing about a relationship with God. Uh, Beth and I raised two sons, and and both of our boys now as adults will say something like they cannot recall a time when Christ wasn't real to them, and I suppose that can happen. Uh, Some testify to like a gradual process where the light comes on slowly, more more gradual. Uh, You know, so you you say, one day I just woke up, and, and I realized I believe. I believe in Christ. And I knew that I belonged to him. Some, some experience an immediate mark, a moment of decision, a crisis point, if you will. C.S. Lewis wrote it, about it this way. He said, some ride the train in the daylight. They know precisely when the border's crossed. Others ride the night train and wake up at their destination and are aware of their new location. No matter, no matter. The experiences can vary greatly. The main thing is, And what matters ultimately is that you know right now that you are a Christian. And what matters is not so much the experience as the fact that you have received Christ, have become a child of God, and you've started a new relationship with him. John chapter 1 verse 12 says, Yet to all who received him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become the children of God. All good parents, hear this now, all good parents want to make sure that their children have a good relationship with them. And the good God that we have wants to make sure 
that our relationship with him is a good one. This is the God who loves us. Now, the New Testament makes it clear that it's possible for us to be sure, that we can have assurance. We can have confidence in knowing about our relationship with God. The Bible's clear about this subject, about this point. My whole motive today, you know, this is a good God, a good dad. My whole motive today is so that everyone within the sound of my voice today will leave their experience with a level of assurance that you belong to God and that you understand your faith. That's a pretty good goal, isn't it? So let's get into it for a moment. There, there is a, a very important verse from our text today, 1 John chapter 5, verse 13. Let me rehearse it with you again. It says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. That's pretty explicit language, isn't it? These things have been written in order that you might know that you have eternal life. That's a very strong and reassuring statement. So God wants us to have confidence in our relationship with him in order to gain the confidence we need. We can find that in a few different viewpoints. Here's the first idea. The natural order around us, the, the created world around us will help us with this. Let me explain. Factual reasons to believe in God are all around us. The created order as we are discovering more and more all the time, is infinitesimally small, just so small, and, this, and science continues to discover just the, you know, the building blocks of all matter. It's, it's just amazing. And then at the same time, we have technology that allows us to see into the universe and the expanse of the universe in ways we've never seen before, and it's infinitely large. So it is small as it can be, and it is bigger than big, and these things really point us to some facts that are helpful to us in our faith. For example, there's, a, there's an argument that can be made with regard to understanding the cosmos around us, the natural order, the created order. One of the things that science teaches us is that for every effect, there is a cause, cause and effect. For example, if you walked up to me and smacked me in the face, and I wouldn't recommend it, not, at least not in front of my wife, because she will take you at, at that point. <laughs> I may turn the other cheek, but she'll wear you out if you smack me. So no, I'm just heads up. If you smack me on the face, my face will turn red. So I have the effect of a red face. And someone say, what was the cause? She slapped me. That's what, that's what caused it. And imagine with me if... Uh, if a professor and a student are walking down the street, the professor is a confessed agnostic or atheist. Uh, he believes in a random universe, no intelligent design or designer. And the professor and the student are walking and they find a glass sphere. It's just a simple little circular round sphere of glass. Student says, I wonder where that came from. Professor says, well, uh, there's no way to know, I guess. And the student says, well, what if this sphere was 10 times bigger than it is or 1,000 times bigger than it is or even a million times bigger than it is? Well, the professor would say, well, then there would be no explanation for it. We could conclude it just happened. And, of course, the immense effect had to have a cause. If there is a sphere, maybe the size of planet Earth, for example, where did it come from? And, of course, it can't be God because I choose not to believe in such a thing. I'm an agnostic or an atheist. 
And if I'm honest, speaking now for the professor, if I might, I don't want to be responsible or accountable to God. So it's easier for me to dismiss him in my mind, intellectually kill God, if you will, so that I don't have to be responsible to or accountable to the same God. And most people would not say this out loud, but let me just venture an opinion, which may cause trouble, but I would submit to you that the majority of people who assume a, a philosophical worldview of agnosticism or atheism do so in large part because they don't want to find themselves responsible or accountable to, to someone like a God greater than themselves. Could I just say this? Intellectual pride is a very serious problem. Intellectual pride will, will, get, will send you to hell just about as fast as anything that I know about. So heads up there. So there's a cosmological argument. Then second of all, there's, there's just other evidence in the created order. Hugh Ross has written an article called 59 Things. I, you know, it's, it's not a long, it's not a long uh, read, but I love this stuff. 59 Things. He concludes that if just one of these 59 things was different or missing, we could not have life on earth. For example, how close the earth is to the sun modulates the temperature here. Uh, the nearly circular orbit that the planet has around the sun, the speed of the rotation. We are currently rotating on our axis as a planet. Uh, the speed of rotation is approximately 1,070 miles per hour, 1,070 miles per hour. We are spinning right now at 1,000 miles an hour. Anyone getting motion sickness? We are, circ we are, we are circumventing the, the, the sun in our orbit, Earth's orbit, and the speed at which the Earth is traveling around the sun is, is approximately 67,000 miles per hour. So we are spinning at 1,000 miles an hour while traveling at 67,000 miles an hour. And this is the most amazing uh, fun ride that you've ever been on in your life. You're just being on the Earth. It's an amusement to, to be spinning and moving that fast. I mean... Uh, yeah, motion sickness is going gonna, is gonna to happen. The, the most fascinating part about this is the tilt that we are on our axis. As you know, the earth spins as we go around the sun, and we're on a tilt of 23 and a half degrees. That 23 and a half degrees is precise, enabling all the seasons to come and go. It's fascinating for me, for example, in February every year when the Australian Open Tennis Tournament is played, it's the middle of summer in Australia when it's February here. And so in the Southern Hemisphere, it's summer when it's winter on the Northern Hemisphere and vice versa. And that's all because of the tilt of 23 and a half degrees. Amazing. Springtime, summer, fall, harvest, winter. Amazing. So if you went into your basement, for example, and you found a thousand dominoes all standing on end, lined up side by side, you would say, hey, what blew up down here? Who threw a bomb in the basement? Lining up all these dominoes. You wouldn't say that. The reason you wouldn't say that is because that would be ridiculous. The Bible says that the heavens declare the glory of God. The heavens shout, there's a God. There's a God. There's a God. The Bible says that the fool has said in his heart, 
there is no God. There's a moral argument that you could make. There are approximately 8 billion human beings on planet Earth right now. 8 billion. And we all have the same moral code. Please explain that to me. All of us. You don't have to teach any child from any culture, any language, any sect, any religious uh, order, no matter where you are in the world, you don't have to teach a small child that it's wrong to lie or to steal. How is it that every human being ever born actually knows that, is aware of that? One of my earliest memories in life was I was about five years old. I was walking down the street of my small town, five years old. Uh, I grew up in a town where we free-ranged. Kids were just free-ranging. Mothers would put us out after breakfast in the morning, and we don't, sometimes we don't come back until, you know, at dark. And I'm just, I'm five years old and I'm free ranging. There's a thousand people in my hometown. Everybody's, is just running around. Everybody's kind of taking care of everybody else. And I was about two blocks from my house and I noticed a toy car that caught my eye and it was just off the front yard of a friend of mine, but it was on the shoulder of the road. And I remember at five years old thinking about this. It may be my friend's car, but it's not actually in his yard. And so that could be my car. And so I picked it up and took it home. I stole it. Now, before bedtime that night, I, I wrestled with having stolen this car, knowing it's not mine, until I broke down and in tears, I confessed to my parents that I'd stolen this car. Uh, with their counsel and assistance, the next morning, I got up, walked down, knocked on my neighbor's door. His mother came to the door, and I had to say to her, I'm sorry, I stole this car. Please forgive me. By the way, that's good parenting. Really good parenting. My question is, how could a five-year-old boy be gripped by guilt and shame over something like that? How is that possible? Animals don't have that. Only people. Where does that come from? What's that all about? Listen, I'm just saying there's good reasons to believe. Well, I just don't believe in God. Okay, well, go out on a starlit night sometime and look up. What is your answer? What's your answer? Science doesn't have any good explanations. They take shots at it, but nobody has come up with a good one. So I'm just not willing to think that I could throw a stick of dynamite into a room full of letters and out would fly the Declaration of Independence. I don't have the faith for that. Can't, I can't see it through. Now, there are other reasons. Not only the natural order around us that all points to God all the time, and we could spend weeks just talking about evidence for that. There are other three other means by which confidence can be built, assurance can be formed in us with regard to our relationship with God. And we can order them according to the Trinity. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. The promises that the Father gives us in His Word, the sacrifice of the Son on the cross, and the assurance of the Spirit in our hearts. Let me summarize. Under these three headings, the Word of God, the work of Jesus, and the witness of the Holy Spirit all give us the assurance we need in our relationship with God. Let's rehearse those quickly. First is the word of God. If we were to rely on our feelings, 
our emotions, popular opinion, modern trends, pop culture, if we to rely on all the subjectivity of that, it's like basing our lives on whether or not the weather will change or what we had for breakfast or our feelings, which are always changing and oftentimes deceptive. The promises of the Bible, however, the word of God does not change and are totally reliable. Our faith is not based on feelings, but on facts, the word of God. There's an analogy that's used uh, in the Bible. There are many such analogies. Revelation 3.20, behold, I stand at the door and knock. And if anyone opens, hears my voice, opens the door, I'll come in and be in relationship with him. And so this, this analogy, this is, is made, that God actually comes to us and knocks on our hearts, if you will, and if we hear him and open the door to him and receive him, he'll come in and establish relationship. That's what led Jesus to say in Matthew 28, I am with you always. Or in John 10, I give them eternal life. My roommate, uh, my senior year at the university, his name was Ken Pollitz. Ken was also on the basketball team at Valparaiso University, and Ken was a transfer uh, from the University of Missouri, grew up in Chicago. Uh, Ken, Ken uh, at the time, was 6'7", weighed about 225 pounds. Uh, he was a handful. He, uh, he had size 16 shoes. I lived with Ken my senior year, his junior year, in a 10 by 10 foot block wall dorm room. You know, the old adage, uh, where did Ken sleep? The answer was anywhere he wanted to. It was okay with me. And I started witnessing to Ken, sharing my faith with Ken. And in about the sixth or eighth week of our tenure together in that dorm room, I was trying to share my faith. And Ken looked at me and he said, listen, I don't want to talk about this anymore. Uh, I'd appreciate it if you don't bring this up anymore. And my response to that, Perfect. Because whatever Ken wants is fine with me. Are you, are you listening? You're not visualizing this, are you? Ken was a monster. He's like the bear in the woods. He does whatever he wants. And if he doesn't want to talk about Jesus, that's fine with me. I was just thrilled that I wasn't in his category on the team. Because every day, I didn't have to you know, play the position on the floor with him I was on a different part of the court, and so I didn't have to run into him very often. And he would just wear people out. He was all knees and elbows. It was, it was brutal. I mean, he was literally knocking people out in practice. He's a handful, so you don't mess with him. He's a problem. Do I, do I need to go on? I need a little response here, please. Well, if, even if he doesn't want to hear about Jesus, you should keep telling him. You go tell him. I'll be right behind you. <laughs> Two years before the end of school that year, I went into to the dorm room. Ken was in there. I turned on the TV. Two seconds after I turned the TV on, Ken turned it off, which is perfectly fine because if... <laughs> If Ken doesn't want to watch TV, that's, all, that's just great. What a coincidence. I really didn't want to watch it either. There you go. Now you're getting it. 
So Ken looks at me and he says, all year you've been talking to me about having a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, and I've been in church all my life, but I want you to tell me more about that relationship. Okay. And I did. And Ken made a decision to receive Christ that night, that day. And the promise of eternal life was made real to Ken Pollitt's that day because he placed his confidence in the promises of the word of God. By the way, Ken and his wife Linda just retired from decades of pastoral ministry with the Lutheran church. Pretty cool, right? Really exciting. Now listen to me. Here's what I know. The resurrection is real. It proves that what Jesus achieved on the cross was effective. It assures us about the present, that Jesus is alive. His power is with us, bringing us life in all of its fullness. It assures us about the future, that life here in the earth is not the end. There is life beyond the grave. History is not meaningless. History is not cyclical. It is moving towards a glorious climax. One day, the Bible says Jesus will return to earth to establish a new heaven and a new earth, Revelation 21. Then those who are in Christ will go be with the Lord forever, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. There will be no more crying. There will be no more pain. There will be no more temptation, no more sin. There will be no more suffering, no more separation from loved ones. Then we will see Jesus face to face, 1 Corinthians chapter 13. We will be transformed into the moral likeness of Jesus Christ, 1 John chapter 3. Heaven will be a place of intense joy and delight that goes on forever. The Bible says in 1 Corinthians 2 that no eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind has conceived what God has prepared for those who love him. We, we can be assured of the fact that there is something else. There is something more. There is newness of life that God will continue to renew day by day by day. C.S. Lewis describes heaven in the last words from the Chronicles of Narnia. Maybe you are familiar with these words. He said, the term is over. The holidays have begun. The dream is ended. This is the morning. All their life in this world had only been the cover and the title page. Now at last they were beginning chapter one of the great story which no one on earth has read, which goes on forever, in which every chapter is better than the one before. Here's the promise of the word of God, my friends. The best is yet to come, and we can look forward to it with great assurance and confidence. Praise God. So faith is taking God's promises and daring to believe them. Daring to believe them. This is what gives us the assurance and confidence we need. Then second of all, there's the work of Jesus. Consider just briefly, how many of you subscribe to the old adage, nothing in life is free? How many of you have used that from time to time? How many of you said it to your kids? Hey, nothing in life is free. And it's true. How many of you have been suspicious, though, of curious emails or texts that you've gotten or maybe in the snail mail saying that you are the lucky winner of something? Congratulations. You have just won, you know, in some item or some amount of money. Uh, but there's always suspicion because there's always a catch. If you'll just send this amount of money for the postage, we'll send you your award. 
or buy the subscription or purchase this winning ticket. There's always some hidden agenda. I got a call from my dad. My dad is, is in heaven now, but this is several years ago. Apparently, the older you get, the more susceptible you are to these, to these schemes, these scams. Apparently, the older you become, the more susceptible you are to these obvious scams. I, I, I just emphasize that because some of you have fallen prey. And it's because you're old. Something happens to us. Our brain turns to mush or something, and you get something in them. My dad called me one day. He said, hey, I've got this thing in the mail, and you blah, blah, blah. And I sent him 7,000. I'm going to get a boat. And I said, no, dad, no, it's a scam. But it sounds, it sounds so good. No, dad, you're, it's, you're, you're wasting your money. It's not, don't please, promise me you won't send them $7,000. I mean, he was going to do it, and I had to talk him off the ledge. It was very frustrating. So don't. Here's how the work of Jesus plays out. What he did on the cross enables him to give us eternal life as a gift. As a gift. You don't earn a gift. You accept it with gratitude. That's how you respond. And although eternal life is free, it's not cheap because it costs someone, Jesus in particular, costs Jesus his life. So we receive a gift that Jesus has purchased for us with his own life. We receive the gift by repenting of the things that we do wrong and embracing this gift by faith. This is how we come into initial relationship with God. That Jesus has purchased for us eternal life with his perfect sacrifice of his own death and now freely gives us a gift which cost him everything, freely gives us this gift which we now receive by repentance, which means to change my mind, turn my back on the old, and turn my face to the new, and, and to receive by faith this gift that God has provided for me. This is how it works. And so the word repentance means that we change our ways and we turn our back to everything we know to be wrong. And the promise of Romans 6.23 is that the gift of God will be given to us. That John 3.16, that God loves us and died to prove it. And 2 Corinthians 5, that he took his sins upon himself. And so we have this promise made possible by the work of Jesus. Are you following this? His work on the cross now provides to us a gift. And we can have the assurance and the confidence of knowing we belong to him because by faith we have received the gift he offers us. Now here's the third thing. This, that's not only good preaching, that's really good theology. So here's the third thing. There's the witness of the Spirit, the Word of God, the work of Jesus, and now the witness of the Holy Spirit. If I were to ask you how I know I'm married, I would remind you of a few things. First of all, I have documentation. I have a marriage certificate in our file, and, I, and there's also proof at the, in, the, in the county records, in the county where we were married, and so we have that. We also have 
the event of the wedding ceremony itself. I have eyewitnesses. We have photographs. We were at an altar in a particular place exchanging vows before God and people. Just like the events of Jesus' resurrection and crucifixion, there's proof. You know, there, there's, a, there's witnesses that can give claim to it. I can do the same with my marriage. I could also describe to you the experiences of living together in relationship with Beth now for 46 years as a married couple. And just like a relationship with Jesus, we can share experiences of a loving, powerful, grace-filled experience through the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit comes to live inside of us, and when we invite Jesus Christ into our lives, the Holy Spirit takes up residence with us. And so we live in the presence of God, in the person of the Holy Spirit, and it forms our character. Being, being under the influence of the Holy Spirit shapes us and forms us. You know, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, self-control. We have all of these attributes, characteristics, fruitfulness that the Holy Spirit's interaction with us cultivates inside of our person, our character, our essence, our being. We become different people and growing in that difference. It's, it, it's really good. One guy said, look, I'm not what I should be, and I'm not what I'm going to be, but thank God I'm not what I used to be. And so we're changing because of the influence of the Holy Spirit. Our, our relationships change. I, uh, I wonder if your attitude about God is changing in the context of this series, the, the essence, the essentials that we believe. I hope it is. I'm curious about Jesus. If someone's talking about Jesus, I kind of lean into that, don't you? If you eavesdrop and hear someone say, well, you know, I think Jesus this or that, I like to know what they're talking about and learn more about that. As a new Christian, my attitude toward other Christians began to change. And my relationships have been formed in powerful, beautiful, strategic, self-fulfilling and mutually fulfilling ways because of the work of the Holy Spirit. I uh, am occasionally asked to teach a section in a, in a class that goes for several weeks called Perspectives on the World Christian Movement. This is a, this is a special class of, on Christian worldview and missions uh, formulated by uh, Fuller Theological Seminary years ago. And so uh, communities and local churches host the Perspectives class, and it takes several weeks, as I say. And so I, I'll teach a section of that. I was in Indianapolis teaching one night on, in the perspectives class, and there were two young women in the class that night who came up to me afterwards and said, we know you because we attended Union Chapel when we were students at the university years ago. I did not know these women. As far as I know, I'd never met them. But they were college students who attended Union Chapel during their matriculation here in, in Muncie, and they both had a story. And it was wonderful to catch up with both of them and to hear the way God has ordered their lives. One has been with a cross-cultural experience ministry uh, on the mission field and with future ambition. And the other was an administrator on the staff of a local church here in Indiana. One of them said to me, and I quote, I wrote this down because it was so encouraging to me. They said, God used Union Chapel to shape my passion for the peoples of the world, which led her to a missionary career. And the other one said, when I was a student at Taylor University and attending Union Chapel, there was a worship series that you preached on the subject of surrender. And she looked at me, and now tears were forming in her eyes. <laughs> and she said, 
It changed my life. I don't know about you, but my attitude toward God, toward Christians, toward other people is different now that I'm a Christian. And the influence of the Holy Spirit in our lives and among us in the church is a powerful, powerful witness which leads us to having assurance and confidence that God is with us and will honor our relationship. There are experiences. My attitude about myself has changed. I'm about to help someone right now. If you'll hear me. My attitude about myself has changed because of my experience with the Holy Spirit. Let me explain. For me, and this is just me, and it may apply to some of you, and it certainly won't apply to all of you, but for me, this is my issue. Performance has always been my orientation. You should know that my mother is a firstborn um, of, of five children. She's the firstborn of an alcoholic with an alcoholic father. She was the firstborn, and she's type A, and she uh, is performance-driven. This was all shaped and formed in her family of origin, her, her original family. I am her firstborn. I'm also wired type A with this, with this performance thing. My mother, my mother uh, always had a, a, a place for everything and everything for a place. Her, her homes were always immaculate. She had high expectations. She expected my sisters and me to always be presentable. You got to look, look like you're together. You have to act like you're together. Uh, my vocabulary had to be right. My penmanship had to be right. Uh, I've never had, I've never had uh, a therapist like in the psychological sciences, but if I ever went to see one and if they're any good, the first question they should ask me is, tell me about your mother. And that's where we should start. So, I, so, so you understand, I'm not, I'm not making an excuse for myself. I'm just telling you this is my story and this is, you know, this is how my tree got bent. And so my whole worldview as I see myself in it, is as a performer. This, you know, this affected my athletic career early on and has affected my life in, in all, the, all the above. So this is, the, this is my part of my story. Now, this is where I can help you. Listen, I can recall the season in my life when I began to get it, quote, to get it. By that I mean, God by the Holy Spirit kept saying to me, I love you. I'm proud of you. I'm pleased with you. I love you just because I love you. You don't have to perform for me. You don't have to be good to get my acceptance. I love you just the way you are. And here's what changed for me. I began to believe it. I had to choose it. I had to choose to believe it because I, I can't believe that because I'm wired up differently. So I had to make the decision. I'm going to intentionally absorb that. 
I'm going to receive that. I'm going to say yes to that. I'm going to believe it, that God loves me, and he accepts me, and he forgives me, just because that's who he is. Not based on my activities at all. My performance, my determination, none of that. And so I began to believe it. Now, hear me when I say it changed my life. I mean, that stands to reason, doesn't it? He changed my life. It continues to inform me as a man, as a person. It informs me as a husband, as a father, as a grandfather, as a friend, as a priest. It informs my life because I'm always, my default, my default is always that I could do better. I should do better. That I'm not good at one thing or another or that I'm actually a failure at this or that. And so I have to live, I have to live in this constant communication, communion with the Holy Spirit. Occasionally I even, I say, God, how you feel about me today? You know how I feel about you. Thanks, I needed that because I just, I feel like I'm not measuring up because that's the way I'm wired. And so I've discovered that God loves us, all of us this way. That the truest thing about us is what God says about us. And God says he loves you just, just the way you are. And he accepts you and he forgives you. You don't have to be anything you're not to be included in his love and his family. He, he embraces you. Now will he, now will he shape you and form you and shift your character into his image? Yeah, yeah, that's, that's the work he does. But first, you have to understand who you are because your, your behavior and my behavior is always shaped by our identity. Who we perceive ourselves to be directly affects the way we live. Behavior flows from our self-concept, our identity, what we believe about ourselves. And if you are wise then you will give yourself permission to believe about yourself what God believes about you. And the truest thing about you is what God says about you. And he thinks you're great. He thinks you're lovable. He knows you. He knows your foibles. He knows your failures. He knows all that stuff. And he still loves you. This is an amazing grace that we, that we experience from this loving God who wants the best for us. This is how I began this sermon, and this is how I'm going to end it. The, the, whole, the whole business of being a Christian is the world is to be in intimate relationship with a God who loves you and has your best interest in mind. And he's made this all possible by the stunning, the stunning investment of the life of his own son on our behalf. It's an amazing grace. It's a wonderful miracle, and it's open to all of us. Whosoever will may come and receive this love and this acceptance. Isn't this a great thing? This is what we believe. This is who we are as the people of faith. This God we serve is a good dad. He's a good man. He loves us, and he wants us to be part of his family. Well, so therefore, it's not arrogant to believe, and it's not arrogant to be sure of what you believe. These things have been written in order that you might be sure of your eternal life. And that's the invitation I give you today. Maybe you're in the room today and you're not sure. You don't have the peace that you need 
where you desire in your relationship with God. If that's where you are today, good news. God will meet you right where you are. You turn from your sins and you open your heart by faith to this gift of love, acceptance, and forgiveness that God offers to you. And he'll receive you. And the Holy Spirit will assure you that you belong to him. It's the way you should go through the world. This is, this is really living. And I, I invite you to receive it today. Would you bow your heads with me? I'd like to just say a prayer. And if you'll pray this prayer out loud after me, I believe God will hear it. And you can do some business with God today. No one prays alone here, so let me invite everyone to pray this prayer out loud right after me. You ready? Heavenly Father, I'm sorry for the things I've done wrong. Please forgive me. I now turn away from everything I know is wrong. Thank you that you sent your son to die on the cross for me so I could be forgiven and be set free. From now on, I will follow and obey Jesus as my Savior and my Lord. Thank you that you offer this gift of forgiveness and your spirit. I now receive that gift. Please come into my life by your Holy Spirit to be with me forever. I want to know, I want to have assurance I want to be confident in my relationship with you. Thank you for loving me, accepting me, and forgiving me. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Amen. Now, would you stand with us?